0: Thirty four for our scripture reading this morning. Psalm thirty four. have a note there in your Bible about this psalm. This psalm is what we call an acrostic psalm. That means each verse of this chapter begins with the succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So in verse 1, it begins with I will bless, which begins with the Hebrew letter Aleph, or what we would say is an A. Verse 2, it begins, In the Lord. Now, your English might not say that, but in Hebrew, that's what it says, In the Lord. And that begins with the Hebrew letter Baith, or B, B. And then verse 3 begins with the word magnified. And uh, that's spelled with the letter G or the Gimel in Hebrew. So um, there's not a C or there. It doesn't go in that order. It goes A-B-G in Hebrew. And so it goes right on down through each verse beginning with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that's done to help the reader memorize, not just read, not just know, well, Verse 1 began with the, the letter A, so verse 2 begins with the letter B. It's not just done for that. It's done so people could memorize this psalm. And so I don't know if that helps you or not. One of the things I do in my Bible is when I have an acrostic psalm like this, I write the letter in the margin. And so I write it in there so I can see how the psalm flows. So let me read this. And uh, the the, uh, superscription here says, a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord, the humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed this poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears. "'and delivers them out of all their troubles. "'The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart "'and saves such as have a contrite spirit. "'Many are the afflictions of the righteous, "'but the Lord delivers him out of them all. "'He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. "'Evil shall slay the wicked,' And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. And none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Psalm chapter 34. Now there with your Bibles open, turn to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. This morning, we're going to get into... Daniel 11, the end of it, and then into chapter 12. So we're going to finish chapter 11 and get into chapter 12. And uh, remember, chapters 10, 11, and 12 all go together. Daniel 10, 11, and 12, they all go together. This is one context. And so... Uh, Chapter divisions, verse divisions, sometimes they're good, sometimes they just don't make a whole lot of sense considering the message of the the book of the Bible. And um, in this case, 10, 11, and 12 all go together. It's just a running uh, section of uh, prophecy. And so as we move towards the conclusion of the book, there's only 13 verses in chapter 12, so we're moving toward the conclusion of the book, it becomes increasingly important for us to remind ourselves of what's in the book, what's in the book of Daniel. So I just want to briefly remind you of where we have been, what we have learned, where we've come from. So the theme of the book of Daniel is... The Most High, and we can say God, the Most High God rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he wills, whoever he wants. That's the theme. The Most High God rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he wants. Now, there's a few verses that go along with this, and I'm I'm just going to give you the reference here if you don't already have them. So the the references that prove the theme of the book are chapter 2, verse 21. Chapter 2, verse 21. Then in chapter 4, we have three verses. In chapter 4, there's three verses. Verse 17, verse 17, verse 25, 25, and verse 32, verse 32. One more. And that's chapter 5, verse 21. So chapter 2, verse 21. Chapter 4, verses 17, 25, and 32. And chapter 5, verse 21. All these verses show us that the theme of this book is the most high God rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he wants. Now... When we get into chapter 1, we're we're given background. It gives us the background of this book, The Babylonian Captivity as Experienced by Daniel. It shows us God's protection and provision for Daniel and Daniel's devotion and loyalty to God. As we get to chapter 2, it begins the first major section. Chapter 2 through chapter 7 is our first major section in the book of Daniel. And this section focuses on... The Gentile nations, the Gentile nations. How do they fit into God's plan? We're told that in these chapters. So in chapter 2, you'll remember we have Nebuchadnezzar's dream of this image with a head of gold, an upper body of silver, lower body of bronze, legs of iron, feet and toes of iron and clay. Each of those body parts, each of those substances represent a specific Gentile kingdom or Gentile Empire But very importantly, at the end of that chapter, we find that there is a kingdom that God himself will establish, which will supersede all other kingdoms. That's chapter two. In chapter three, we have Daniel's friends and the fiery furnace. In this chapter, God is demonstrating to Nebuchadnezzar that his entire kingdom, This kingdom is what God has established, and he is over it all. God overrules any king of the earth. He overrules him. The king says one thing, throw those men into the fiery furnace. God's word overrules the king's word. So that's chapter 3. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a tree. And in this chapter, God is demonstrating to Nebuchadnezzar and to the entire Babylonian kingdom that he is the God. He is the one who raises kingdoms and blesses kingdoms. And when you're prideful, God will bring you low. That's chapter 4. Chapter 5 is Belshazzar's Feast. Belshazzar's Feast, the handwriting on the wall, the end of the Babylonian Empire. God ends the Babylonian Empire in this chapter and he transfers it to whoever he wills. Remember, Most High God rules over the kingdom of men and he gives it to whoever he wants to. And in this chapter, he takes it from the Babylonians and he gives it to the Medo-Persians just as he said he would. In the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 51:11, God prophesies that the Medes would take Babylon. That's chapter five. In chapter six, we have Daniel in the den of lions. Same Daniel, different king. Same Daniel, different world empire. In Daniel chapter six, the world empire is the Medo-Persian Empire. And what we learn there is that God is not just sovereign over the Babylonian kingdom. He's also sovereign over the Medo-Persian Empire as well. In chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of four beasts. Four beasts. This Chapter corresponds to chapter 2. It's giving us more information about the Gentile empires. But there's a special focus on the fourth empire and the one who comes out of the fourth empire, the little horn, who we would identify as the Antichrist. And even though this little horn will be powerful and mighty in all the earth, the kingdom. Is actually going to be given to one like the Son of Man, whose kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And then we come to the second major section in the book of Daniel, chapter 8 through chapter 12. In these chapters, the focus is on the nation of Israel. The first section, chapter 2 through 7, focuses on the Gentile nations, the Gentile kingdoms in God's plan. And chapters 8 through 12, are going to focus on the nation of Israel. Now, the Gentile nations are mentioned throughout this section, but they're always in the background. They're not the focus. They're always in the background. So in chapter 8, Daniel has another vision, and this is a vision of a ram and a goat. This vision relates to the Medo-Persian Empire, that's the ram, and the Grecian Empire, that's the goat, But special attention is given to the Grecian king who will be very oppressive to the holy people, to the Jews. He's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. And it is the power and the oppression of this king that causes Daniel to have great, great concern. In chapter 9, God reveals to Daniel his 490-year plan for the Jews and Jerusalem, the 70 weeks of Daniel. As Daniel is reading and thinking about the prophecies of Jeremiah, he realizes that the captivity of the Jews is about to be completed. And so he prepares himself, and he seeks to prepare the nation of the Jews for the conclusion of the captivity and so he confesses sins he repents by the way what's the message of jesus christ when he comes when he begins his ministry what's his message repent repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand interesting daniel is repenting here i'm sure there's a connection to the kingdom. So in this chapter, God reveals to Daniel his plan for the Jews. He tells him it's 490 years long. He tells him it has six purposes related to the coming of the kingdom and the Messiah. And God divides his plan into two phases. And he puts a break in between them. In phase one, God says, this is how it begins and this is how it ends. Then he gets to the break and he mentions key events that take place In the break. And then he gets to phase two and he says, This is what happens at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end. So he's revealing all this to Daniel. All this is given in the greater prophetic context of restoring the kingdom to Israel. And now we come to chapters 10 through 12. Daniel is so concerned about the Jews and about what's going to happen to them, what they're going to have to go through, that he seeks more understanding by praying. He prays to God, and God answers his prayer. God answers his prayer by sending an angel to him, who I believe is Gabriel. He sends an angel to him who's going to give him the message that is the answer to his prayer. This message that the angel gives... Involves more information about the Medo-Persian Empire. It involves much, much more information about the Grecian Empire and how that will lead to the Roman Empire. So he tells Daniel, this is how we're going to transfer from the Grecian Empire, the third Gentile kingdom, to the Roman Empire, the fourth Gentile kingdom. Kingdom. The Lord lays that out for Daniel. It's all future to him, but the Lord lays it out. And finally, we see that there's this world-dominating king that comes out of that fourth Gentile empire, this king that we call the Antichrist. And so if you have your Bible open there to chapter 11, Daniel chapter 11, if you look at verses 36 through 39 real quickly, this is where we were at um, in our last study of the book of Daniel. We were looking at these um, four verses here, and what we saw here is this description of the person of the Antichrist, the person of the Antichrist. We saw that he will be a narcissistic egomaniac. You remember that? He's a narcissistic egomaniac. He's going to do whatever he wants according to his own will. We also saw that he is atheistic. He's atheistic. It says here that he's not going to regard any god. So he's... he's atheistic. He's going to view himself as God. We also see that he is militaristic, militaristic. He is going to worship the God of war. He is going to be very, very warlike. Now, we also saw as we were looking at this passage that this is not the first time the Antichrist is actually mentioned in the book of Daniel. So we looked at some other places in the book of Daniel where the Antichrist is mentioned. And then we looked at some places in the New Testament that go on to describe the Antichrist and his times. So today we're going to pick up in chapter 11 verse 40 and continue on through chapter 12 verse 3. And in this context, we're going to see more about the Antichrist's military domination, his warlike spirit, and the destruction that he brings, and how all this is going to relate to the Jews. And as we go through these verses, I want you to keep in mind several themes, several big themes we find in the Bible. So the Antichrist is one of those themes. But we're also going to see here the theme of the tribulation, the tribulation of Israel, the seven-year tribulation. And we're also going to find the theme of resurrection. Resurrection and judgment are in these passages, these verses here this morning. And uh, keep in mind, all of this is not only future for Daniel, this is also still future for us. None of the things that we're going to talk about here this morning have happened yet. They're all in the future. They will happen, but they just haven't happened yet. So let's look here at verse 40 through 45 and the wars of the Antichrist, the wars of the Antichrist. In verse 40, at the beginning of the verse, we see that the Antichrist is attacked. He's attacked. It says, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, him is the Antichrist. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and with ships. So notice the time of the attack. The time of the attack. At the time of the end. Well, of course, that begs the question, end of what? End of what? This is talking about the end of God's 490 year plan for the Jews. So, this is setting us into the tribulation period. Okay, that's the setting here is going to be the seven year tribulation. So, at the time of the end, not the end of everything, the end of this plan that God has revealed to Daniel, that seven years. And 9.27, Daniel 9.27, this is the end that's being talked about. Now, that's the time. Now, notice who attacks the Antichrist. Notice who it is. It says the king of the south and the king of the north. You see that in your Bible? Okay, the king of the south and the king of the north. Now, we just went through verse after verse after verse after verse talking about the king of the south and the king of the north. And so, automatically, we might tend to think, this is talking about the same group of people. It's not. It's not. Okay? From our perspective, chapter 11, verse 2 through verse 35, that's all history. That's all history to us. But verses 36 on is all prophecy, it's all future. So the king of the south and the king of the north are not the same people as we saw earlier in chapter 11. Here's an easy way to think about this. Is that um, number one the Seleucid Empire, the king of the north, the king of Syria that empire doesn't exist anymore. Doesn't exist. The kingdom of the south is the kingdom of Egypt. And that's the Ptolemaic Empire. It doesn't exist anymore. Yes, there's an Egypt, and there is a Syria today, but these are totally different countries than what it says here at the beginning of chapter 11. They're just different. And so we try to think, well, who is this? Who could this be? Who's the king of the north, and who's the king of the south? Well, we don't uh, know from this passage. It doesn't tell us. We just know they're from the north and from the south. Now, An easy thing about Bible geography, when you're trying to figure out north, south, east, west, is this. If if the world is a map, just think of a map. So this is our Bible map in front of us. In the very center of the map, in the very center of the world, what country and city is there? Israel and Jerusalem, right? So, you know, whatever they lay out maps today in the biblical map, God's map, right in the center of it is Israel and Jerusalem. And so when you see these phrases that talk about north, south, east, west, and and there's no other geographical indicators there, that's always talking about in relation to Jerusalem, north, north of Jerusalem, south is south of Jerusalem. So we can tell that these people who are going to attack the Antichrist are some group of people that are north of Israel and some group of people that are south of Israel, okay? So that's, that's our geography. That's our, how things are located here. Now, another thing that we learn when we see that the Antichrist is attacked, is that not everybody is going to be on the Antichrist side. Not everybody is going to want to follow the Antichrist. This is talking about, as a part of God's plan, how the Antichrist is going to ascend to power. You know, he didn't just appear on the scene and have world domination, right? He didn't just show up and they say, Oh, he's going to be the leader of the world. That's not how it worked. This is recording for us how the Antichrist comes to be the world power, how he comes to be the ruler of the world. So he's attacked. Now let's go on to the second part of verse 40 into verse 44. And here we see the Antichrist is victorious. So he's attacked, but now we see he's victorious. Notice again at the last part of verse 40, he invades, he overwhelms, and he passes through. It says here, there he enters, he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. Um, this total domination, this expression here, invades, overwhelms, goes through, is expressing the Antichrist' complete military domination of the countries that stand against him. He doesn't even stop to occupy them. He doesn't need to. It's sort of like the Germans in World War II as they went through Poland. They just kept going. They went through Poland and they went through, they started to go up into Lithuania and Latvia and the Soviet Union. They just kept going. The domination is complete. And so he invades, he overwhelms, and he goes through. Verse 41 He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. So he enters the glorious land. Now, that's the land of Israel. Israel is the glorious land. Now, this is pretty simple, but people overlook it. For the Antichrist to enter the land of Israel, that means he has to start where? Outside, okay? Outside the land. I told you it's pretty simple, but people overlook it, okay? So he's entering the land of Israel. That means he has to start outside of the land of Israel. I wonder where he could be coming from. Where's he coming from? Where's the Antichrist coming from that he enters into the land of Israel? Well, the fourth Gentile kingdom is the kingdom of Rome. Where was the Roman Empire located? Where was its capital? What continent? Europe. Europe. Oh. So the Antichrist is going to rise out of an empire. Seems to be a European empire. So he's probably coming from Europe. That means he's going to go across Europe going to come from Europe. He's going to go across the uh, Bospora Strait. That's the strait where Istanbul, used to be called Constantinople, used to be called Byzantium, is located. That city is located. He's going to go right there across into modern-day Turkey, and he's going to come down through modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, where Paul planted churches. He's going to go through there, and he's going to come down through Syria. Through Syria, he's going to enter the land of Israel. And so he enters the glorious land, and then we see also in verse 41 that he either fails to conquer or ignores Edom, Moab, and Ammon. It says, But these shall escape. These shall escape from his hand Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. So The text, as you see there in front of you, says these people escape his hand. That could mean that they were able to get away from the Antichrist's army or that the Antichrist just ignored them, didn't even engage them in combat. Either way, they escape. Now, where are these countries located? Again, we're looking at our Bible map. Israel and Jerusalem are right in the center. All three of these countries are located in what we today would call Jordan. Jordan. All three of these countries are on the east side of the Jordan River. Ammon is the northernmost, it's close to the northern tip of the Dead Sea. Moab is south, close to the bottom end, the southern end of the Dead Sea. And Edom is south of Moab. And so when the Antichrist comes with his army, he comes with military force into the land of Israel, he's coming in from the north. He's coming in from the north. He's coming in from Syria. And these three countries either get out of his way or he just ignores them and he's going to continue south. Where, where is he going as he continues south? Look at verse 42. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So we have these three countries that did escape. The land of Egypt shall not escape. So the Antichrist is marching his armies from Europe down through Turkey, through Syria, through the glorious land, through the land of Israel, and he's going down to conquer Egypt. And he does. He conquers Egypt. They do not escape. And because he conquers Egypt, he is going to control the wealth of North Africa. Look at verse 43. He controls the wealth of North Africa. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also, the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. In other words, they're going to be subjugated as well. So the Libyans, Lubim, that's your Hebrew word for the day. Actually, I have another Hebrew word for you today, but Lubim, that's Libyans. The Ethiopians is Kushim, Kush. Remember that from your Old Testament? Kush. So, this is talking about Cush, the people of Cush. These are ones who will be with Egypt in a coalition to fight against the Antichrist, but he will destroy and conquer them all and control their land. Now, back to our Bible geography. Picture Africa. Egypt is in the northeast corner of Africa, Libya. Is all the territory in northern Africa to the west of Egypt? Cush or Ethiopia here represents all the area south of Egypt. Okay? And we don't know exactly how much land is represented, but we know Egypt is in the north and in the east, and the rest of Africa is to the southwest of Egypt. So this could be a huge coalition of people. And the Antichrist conquers them and he controls all their wealth and all their riches. He is gaining power. Do you see that? He's gaining power on his way to becoming the world leader. And so the Antichrist is down in Egypt, and I would imagine he's consolidating his power and he's setting up some type of organization to control the riches of North Africa. And verse 44 tells us he hears about trouble. Look at verse 44. But news from the east and from the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. He's in Egypt. Back to our map. When you're in Egypt, if you go north and east, where do you go? You got to go up to Israel. Now, he's not going to fight anybody in, from Israel, he's going to go farther than that. He's going back up farther north, Syria, Turkey, and that, that area. And so, the Antichrist, as he is, has defeated this coalition in Egypt, he hears about trouble that's coming from the north and east of Israel. And so he gets angry. He's angry and he heads out in fury to destroy and annihilate these enemies who have come up against him. And he does it. And he does it. He does defeat them. And so in these verses we see the antichrist is dominant in war. He's dominant in war. He is defeating his enemies, the people who have come up against him. And now we see after he has been victorious, verses 40 through 44, we see now in verse 45 that he's going to dwell in Israel. He's going to make Israel his home. Look at verse 45. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. So the seas here refer to the Mediterranean Sea and probably the Dead Sea. Some people might take it from between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. I think it's the Mediterranean. And the glorious holy mountain. Now what's that? the glorious holy mountain. That's the temple mount in in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem. And I think the expression here is actually that he's going to put his palace in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. So I think he's going to take up residence in Jerusalem. He's going to make this his headquarters. Now let me ask you a question. How can he do that? How can he do that? Have you noticed The countries that are mentioned in this passage are all countries that are the historic enemies of Israel. Did you notice that? Ammon, Moab, Edom, Egypt. These are all enemies of Israel. The Antichrist has defeated them. He has just not only defeated his enemies, he's defeated the enemies of Israel. And now he goes back to Israel and says, well, I'm going to live here. Remember, he's from Europe. Now he says, I'm going to live here in Israel. So let me make some connections here. Go back to verse 41 with me. In verse 41, the Antichrist comes into the land of Israel, the glorious land. Now, when he says he enters here, what doesn't it say? What doesn't it say? It doesn't say he defeats the Jews. It doesn't say he fights with the Jews. It just comes in. He just comes in. Look at verse 45 now. Verse 45, the Antichrist goes back to the land of Israel. Remember, he's been down in Egypt. He comes back to the land of Israel and sets up his palace, sets up his place where he lives. This fits right in to God's plan as revealed in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. That's where it says, And he, then he, the Antichrist, shall make a covenant with many. Make a covenant with the Jews for one week. Fits right into what the Lord has already revealed about this man, the Antichrist. And so he's going to dwell in Jerusalem. And it fits right in. His dwelling in Jerusalem fits right in with him making a covenant with the Jews. Coming into agreement with the Jews. But that's not the end. Look at the rest of verse 45. It says, yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. So despite his power and military dominance, the Antichrist end is sure. His rule is going to be taken away from him. His end is sure, it is certain. And this phrase that we see here, and yet shall come his end, this is the same thing that Daniel 9.27 said. If you look back, look look at that verse, 9.27. Look at the very end of it. It says, Even until the consummation, even until the end, that's the word end, which is determined, which is sure. Why is it sure? God determined it. So even until the end, which has been determined by God, is poured out on the desolate. That's the desolate one. That's a reference to the Antichrist himself. So the end is going to happen. It's been determined by God. The Antichrist is not going to continue to rule. So in these verses, we see how the Antichrist comes to world domination. He comes to world domination by being a great military power. This fits with his description. He worships the God of war. He's militaristic. But we also see in these verses that this domination will be brought to an end. I think it's very important for us to realize that the theme of this book, the Most High God Rules Over the Kingdom of Men and Gives It to Whoever He Wants, doesn't just apply to Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't just apply to Cyrus the Great or Alexander the Great, it also applies to the Antichrist and even Satan himself. The power that any of these people or beings have has been allowed by God. They didn't take it. They didn't take it. They didn't say, God, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna take this power for myself. No, God let them have whatever power they have because he is the ultimate ruler and authority and God has a plan and God's plan is that he will defeat the Antichrist when the one like the son of man comes and his kingdom is established forever and ever so that's the wars of the Antichrist now quickly let's go to chapter 12 chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Notice the very first three words in chap- in verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time. At that time. Well, what time of, is that? It's the same time that's talked about in verses 36 through 45 of chapter 11. Seven-year tribulation period. At that time. At that time. At the, the time of the end the time of the antichrist rule at the end of God's plan for Israel and Jerusalem so at that time now what happens at that time we see that Israel's protector and preserver appears look what it says at that time Michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, Daniel's people, the Jews. So Michael, the archangel, is the protector and preserver of the nation of Israel. He's already been mentioned. He's already been mentioned in this passage. He was mentioned in chapter 10, verse 13, and verse 21. He's already been mentioned as someone who comes to help fight for the Jews. And so this is Michael, the arch, uh, archangel, and his purpose is to ensure the survival of the Jewish people even in the midst of great persecution. Even when the Jews are oppressed and persecuted by Satan himself. Michael's there to make sure nobody goes beyond what God has said. Won't you just uh, hear for a minute? Think Daniel 12, Revelation 12. Okay? Put those two passages together Daniel 12 and Revelation 12. And let's go to Revelation 12 here, real quick. Revelation chapter 12. Because. Michael shows up in Revelation chapter 12. Let me just start reading, okay? I'll just start reading and making some comments along the way. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. That's talking about Israel, okay? Israel, 12 stars, 12 tribes, Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as it was born. It's talking about... Satan trying to kill the Messiah when he's born, okay? Verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there. 1,000 260 days, three and a half years, 42 months. In other words, verse 7, notice this especially. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they, Satan and his angels, his demons, did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony that they did not love their lives to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Verse 13. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Would we'll just stop right there? So here's the picture. Here's the picture. Daniel receives just a glimpse of the picture. And John, in the book of Revelation, describes it more fully for us. Satan is opposing the Messiah coming to earth. Of course, he can't stop that. But as soon as the Messiah comes, Satan turns his attention to the Jews. And this is talking especially in these last seven years. He's going to turn his attention to the Jews. And there is this great battle in the spiritual realm. Michael stands up and he fights. And his angels fight Satan and his hordes of demons and Satan is cast down to the earth. That means up until the time of the tribulation, Satan has access to heaven, has access to heaven. You might wonder, the book of Job, it talks about Satan coming before God. How can he do that? How can he do that? I don't know how he can, but he can. He's allowed to have access. He's allowed to have access in heaven up to this point of time where he and his angels are cast down to the earth. They are confined to earth. And because they are confined to the earth, the persecution and tribulations on earth will be worse than they have ever been before, especially because he's going to give his attention to persecuting the Jews. Michael, the archangel, is there to make sure the Jews survive. He's to make sure that they are not annihilated. And so here's Israel's protector and preserver. We keep going on in verse 1. And there shall be a time of trouble such as, was, uh, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. So this is going to be the worst time of trouble that the Jews have ever seen. Now, if we kind of put everything together... And I'm giving you a conclusion instead of a reason here. But if we put everything together, when Satan is cast down, when, when uh, Michael stands up and protects Israel, and Satan is defeated in the, this heavenly spiritual realm battle, this is at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the tribulation. And he's cast down, and it's that, that final three-and-a-half years of the tribulation, where intense persecution comes upon Israel. And it's described as a persecution and trouble like there has never been before. But notice the next phrase in verse 1, and it says, At that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone who's found written in the book of life. This time of deliverance, this time of salvation is at the end of the tribulation. After this great persecution. The Jews have to go through the persecution before they have the deliverance. And notice, it's not just everybody who's delivered. Who's delivered according to this verse? Everyone who is found written in the book, I think that's talking about the book of life. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. Everyone whose name is written in the book of life is delivered. By the way, to be delivered, there is a requirement to being delivered, besides having your name in the book of life. That is, you have to be alive. Right? you got to be alive. To be delivered, you have to be alive. Okay, if you're dead, you're not delivered. If you've been killed, you haven't been delivered. They will be delivered. But they're not the only ones who receive blessing. Notice what it says in verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is uh, the dead are resurrected here. So the living Jews who have trusted in the Messiah will be delivered at the end of the tribulation. Also, at the end of the tribulation, there will be a resurrection, and this resurrection includes those who have everlasting life and those who have everlasting contempt. And so, these this is talking about the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. This is when Daniel will be resurrected. This is when David will be resurrected. They will have this resurrection at the end of the tribulation, at the beginning of the millennium. And finally, we see in verse 3, there's the exaltation of the believing Jews. Those who are wise, talking about the believing Jews, shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So they're going to shine, they're going to be exalted. These believers will be exalted and they're going to lead many to the Messiah. Pretty amazing thing. Pretty amazing thing. Now, a couple real quick, super practical helps for us today. In this passage, we see encouragement when we face distressing news, there's encouragement in the face of distressing news. Prophecy. Is encouraging. It's encouraging. It should encourage us. It should encourage us. Daniel, he was distressed, and he, this is the message that God gives him to encourage him. And here's the message there will be difficult times, there will be tough times, times so bad that there'll be so bad, Not, like nothing that's ever happened before. That's how bad it will be. But I will deliver the believers. I will deliver the Jews. That's what he's saying. Daniel, no matter how bad it is, I'm going to deliver because I keep my word. The Lord says the same thing to us. You realize that? It says the same thing to us. But I think he says it to us an even more magnificent terms. One of the great suffering chapters of the Bible is Romans chapter 8. It talks about the sufferings of the believer. And one of the things it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17 actually is the, the address for it, is it says there that we are not only heirs. We haven't just been made heirs as believers. But we have been made co-heirs with Christ. Think about that and let it sink in. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a co-heir with Christ. You're not just an heir. You're a co-heir with Christ. And being a co-heir with Christ means that we will be glorified together with him. Now, I'm not sure I totally get that. (laughs) I can't hardly, I can't, no, it's not hardly, I can't comprehend that. But it's true. Co-heirs with Christ, and we share in his glorification. So if God is going to deliver the nation of Israel after their time of tribulation and restore to them their kingdom. And he is. Think about what it means to be co-heirs with and to share things in common with the one who's going to come who will deliver Israel. Think what it means to be a co-heir with Christ. So Paul's argument in Romans chapter 8 is that the sufferings you go through here on earth now, these sufferings, you can't even compare them to the glory in the future that you will receive. You can't compare it. There's no compare. No matter how bad you think things are, now, the good that God has for us is way more spectacular than any suffering that we can have now. And it involves our glorification. Y'all know that very famous passage in Romans 8 about God works all things together for those who love him. Then it goes on and you have this chain of things that happen. Okay, and it talks about those who've been predestined, called, and so forth. You remember that? You remember that? It's 28, 29, 30, right there? The, the main thing in there is the glorification. That's the last thing that's mentioned. That these people are glorified. Now, I don't know what all that means as far as being glorified. I don't know what it means exactly. But what I do know it means is that we are changed. Our sins and, and our, any desire for sin is removed, and we're able to be with the Lord in his presence forever. That's encouragement, no matter what we face here on the earth. Second point here real quick, and, and uh, man, I'm going a little bit over today. That's okay. I thought I would be done earlier. That never works out. <clears throat> Second point I want you to remember is the resurrection. You saw the resurrection member mentioned in Daniel 12:2. And I just want you to just briefly remind you of the fact that everybody will be resurrected one day. Everybody. Everybody. Now, who does that include? Everybody. Okay? Okay? Everybody includes everybody doesn't matter if they trusted Christ as Savior or not. Everybody will be resurrected one day. Those who are saved are resurrected to eternal life. Those who are not saved are resurrected to eternal condemnation and will be cast into the lake of fire. The resurrection... The resurrection is not just about Jesus rising and us rising with him, although it is about that, and that's an important point. The resurrection is also about the price and the penalty and the salvation from our sins. Everybody will be resurrected one day. It's not a matter of who. It's a matter of what kind of resurrection will you have. It will happen. It will happen. What resurrection will you be a part of? Well, let's stand and have a word of prayer as we uh, think more about these things that Daniel has taught us here uh, this morning. Father, we give you thanks for the clarity of your word and we recognize our weakness, not in just understanding it, but even trying to explain it and talk about it And uh, Lord, we just trust that as your word is read and as your word is looked at, that the Holy Spirit will provide the understanding that we need based on what you have said in your word. Lord, help us to see, even as we look at prophecies, things that have yet to come to pass, That all these things should be a great encouragement to us. They're, They're a great encouragement not just because you can predict things, but they're great encouragement because you will be faithful to your word. And when you say something will happen and something is true, it will happen and it is true. That applies to Daniel and that applies to us today. Help us to live by that. Help us to live according to that. Help us to know that whatever we face here in this world and this time on this earth, it is nothing compared to what you have said awaits us in the future. Lord, help us to be faithful in proclaiming this message to those around us. Lord, we understand from this passage that one day there's only two places that everybody's going to go. There's eternal life, and then there's eternal judgment, eternal condemnation. Help us to realize that. Help us to understand that they are polar opposites, and the greatness of being with you is also uh, It reflects how terrible it will be to not be in your presence and be cast into the lake of fire. So help us to be faithful witnesses to those who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior.